Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Mark Allward, an associate at Taylor McCaffrey, the ELA member for Manitoba, Canada. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are going to be chatting again with our member in Alberta, Canada. Joining us today on the program are lawyers Danica McClellan and Gab Joshi Arnal with Newman Thompson. So today we're going to be speaking with Danica and Gab about restrictive covenants and specifically non-competition and non-solicitation agreements. These are important features in many employer and employee relationships and in employment agreements. Danica and Gab will be explaining more about restrictive covenants for employment agreements in Alberta specifically, and what employers need to consider in preparing their employment contracts. Welcome to the program, Gab and Danica. It's a pleasure to have you back. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having us, Mark. Yeah, happy to be here, Mark. Thanks for having us again. So let's get right into things. Are non-competition and non-solicitation clauses legal to have in an employment contract in Alberta? The answer today, Mark, is yes. We don't have legislation in Alberta like our friends out to the east in Ontario, which place restrictions on the ability to implement these sorts of clauses. Now, that being said, like you see in a lot of other jurisdictions in Canada, the enforceability of those clauses is something that is subject to common law rules and various court decisions. So then what are some of those common law considerations and factors that a court would look to with respect to enforcement of a restrictive covenant? So similar to other Canadian jurisdictions, we primarily look at three factors for non-competition clauses specifically. So those three factors will include the geographic scope, the time, and the nature of the restriction. And so these three factors get considered together rather than individually. So it's not like a checklist. It's more, you know, balancing and weighing each of those factors against each other to determine if the restriction is reasonable for that particular employee and given their particular role in the organization. And so, for example, a court is less likely to enforce a non-compete that is going to completely prevent a person from carrying on their profession in Alberta, the entire province, for years to come. And the court's more likely to enforce a restrictive covenant or a non-compete which would restrict the person from working for a direct competitor with a relatively narrow geographic scope, like within one specific city in Alberta, for a shorter period of time, like a year. And so like most things, it's contextual. And a court's going to scrutinize a non-compete that is applicable to a chief financial officer of a large company, for example, much differently than they would for an entry-level position. Jumping off of Danica's comments and switching to non-solicitation clauses specifically, when you're looking at those, courts tend to generally view them more favorably, viewed more favorably among other reasons because they tend to be less restrictive than a non-competition covenant. Principally, what you're looking at is time and length of time. When you're looking at assessing those, there might be some nuance within the language that you're also going to look at, but how long is that non-solicitation covenant become sort of the main focus in those analyses often? So Danica, you made a comment a moment ago about how courts will scrutinize restrictive covenants on different levels for different people. 
you use the example of a financial officer versus an entry level position. So that kind of stems to my next question here. Can any employee be subject to these restrictive covenants in the course of their employment? Mark, in classic lawyer speak, I will say it depends. And I say it depends. And echoing what Danica said earlier, it is very much context driven. What I would say as a good rule of thumb is generally speaking, the higher level up or the more of a position in trust that somebody holds, the more likely it is that a non compete or a non solicit would be enforceable. And the further you get down the organizational chart and the further away you are from somebody holding the business in their hands, the less likely it becomes to enforce those sorts of covenants. And I think it's worth mentioning here, we talked a little bit earlier about the legislation in Ontario, which outlaws restrictive covenants for many employees, but does allow them for C-suite and similar level employees. But moving on, what are the key considerations that employers need to have when they're drafting these restrictive covenants when they're dealing with Alberta? So, Mark, there's two really important things that employers who may be listening should keep in mind. The first is that you really want to emphasize clarity in your language. And the second is you want to make sure that you aren't overreaching on the scope of what's being restricted. And so what I say to clients all the time, an employer and their counsel, they should consider what specifically they're trying to achieve and how the language that they're drafting achieves that specific goal. Because you want to make sure that you're not going to, you know, inadvertently include any unnecessary restrictions that might result in the clause being unenforceable more broadly, and which, you know, didn't even support the objective the employer was trying to meet in the first place. So some questions that an employer may want to ask themselves are, you know, are you concerned that the employee may leave to work for a specific competitor that you have in mind? Is there a time frame where an employee leaving to work for a competitor it would be particularly harmful. For example, if you've got someone who is you know, negotiating a contract with a vendor and they leave and they go work for a direct competitor who may also be bidding on that same work, you know, thinking about those sorts of timelines. And you know, thinking too is, you know, is the employer actually more concerned about the employee leaving to start their own competing business? Because coming out of COVID, we're seeing a lot more employees who are starting their own businesses. And if that's what the employer's concern is, then perhaps a non-solicitation clause is really what they're looking for. And so each employer and individual position is going to have unique characteristics that may support a more or less restrictive clause. So there really isn't one-size-fits-all language, but employers and, and their counsel should sit down and have a conversation about what are we trying to achieve here and making sure that the language achieves that goal. All great points there, Danica. Now, if I'm in the situation where I'm already engaged with an employee, I already have an employee under an employment agreement, but I want to implement this sort of protection and these sorts of clauses into this relationship, what do I need to do? That's a great question, Mark, and is one that I've heard from a number of people recently. There's a few factors and things to keep in mind, one of which is a fundamental idea of consideration. So if you're changing the contract, If you're asking somebody to take on this extra charge of a restrictive covenant, what is it that you as an employer are giving in exchange for that? And that consideration can be a point of discussion in terms of how much or what that looks like. But that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is what, if any, notice are you giving, for instance, to somebody of this change or 
How are you looking at implementing that from a timing perspective as pushing forward with this on some sort of a unilateral basis? Parking the consideration issue may also, of course, give rise to some concerns around constructive dismissal or the enforceability of those clauses at a later point. When we're talking about consideration, obviously, we know that consideration can be anything in terms of a contract. It could be very little, even in terms of a peppercorn. But for these sorts of changes, what would constitute sufficient consideration? I may start to sound like a broken record here, but it is context-driven and it depends. I would say that this is speaking from a recent example I had. If somebody were, for example, to walk in and give a dollar consideration to try and enforce a 12-month non-compete covenant of some sort, I don't think a court is going to look at that favorably. They're likely going to say that that just doesn't make sense to deem enforceable. Really, it boils down to, in many respects, there are legal tests, of course, but I start by going by a bit of a smell test to say, does that make commercial sense that the parties would say, you're getting that in exchange for this? That's sound advice. So we've talked a lot about what these clauses look like, some of the considerations that employers need to have, what are the pitfalls, what sort of consideration and what needs to be given to an employee. Where is this going? What do employers need to know going forward when it comes to restrictive covenants in Alberta? Well, Mark, like like you've mentioned and like Gab mentioned off the top, we haven't seen in Alberta legislation like what has been introduced in Ontario that effectively prohibits these types of restrictive covenants for the majority of employees. You know, there haven't been any discussions or consultations to date in Alberta about something similar, but we're always alive to that as a potential issue. And employers should also really be aware of the impact these clauses have on an employee's ability to mitigate their losses in the event of a wrongful dismissal claim, or even the impact it has on the employee's perception of their ability to mitigate their losses in the event of a wrongful dismissal claim. And so a non-compete, which makes it effectively impossible for an employee to secure new and reasonably similar employment during that notice period, will mean that the employer is likely going to be on the hook for that full amount of damages during the notice period. And so this is one of the reasons that employers are well-served to ensure that any restrictive covenants they introduce meet their objectives, but don't go further than that so that there aren't any unintended consequences down the road later on. That mitigation issue is a very topical and practical question that I'm sure many of our lawyer listeners will be very familiar with. This has been a very interesting discussion, and certainly some guidance has been given here that will be helpful to many employers throughout Alberta. Thank you so much for your time, Danica and Gab. Thank you so much for having us, Mark. Thanks again, Mark. Always a pleasure. If you would like to connect with Danica or Gab, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers from around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. In addition, search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Mark Allward. Thanks for listening.